Good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. It's fantastic to see so many new faces, friendly faces, familiar faces. Um, really excited to come this morning and explore God's Word. And I hope we'd all come with that attitude this morning of an, a sense of excitement as we come and open God's Word, as we come and open and explore what God's going to say to us this morning. For those who are new to us, we're currently working through the book of Esther, uh, which is found in the Old Testament and is quite a short book. It's about 10 chapters long. And today we're going to be reading Esther 4. So Esther 4. But before we get to that, it's really important that we just quickly remind ourselves what has gone on so far and the background to this book. So the period of time that the book was set in was after the Babylonian exile, where Jews were forcibly removed from their homeland by the superpower at the time, the Babylonians. After this, the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonian army and became the next regional superpower. As a result of the victories over the Babylonians, the Persian Empire stretched approximately 3,057 miles from Egypt to Thrace. To put that into context, the USA is approximately 2,800 miles from coast to coast. We are talking about a huge empire. As a result of the Jewish exile under the Babylonians, there were approximately now 15 million Jews scattered throughout this massive, vast empire. After the Persians had overthrown the Babylonians, some Jews returned home, whilst others remained settled where they were, such as some of our people in the story we're looking at today, the book we're looking at today. And the book of Esther is believed to occur approximately about 478 BC, which was a period of time under a king called I'm going to call him Xerxes because I can't pronounce his other name. So King Xerxes. So far, we've read the first three chapters, which have already been action-packed. In chapter one, we're introduced to King Xerxes. We learn that he's a proud king who loved to show off. When he had guests over, he'd have golden vessels. His couches were made out of gold and silver. The list goes on. If you want to find in the Bible an example of a materialistic person, a, a king who loves himself, who is proud, look no further. And we see that he's thrown a, a party, and not just any party, this is a huge, massive party, 180 days, where anything goes. We're told that the king had given orders for each man to do as he desired. During this feast, he called for his wife, then Queen Vashti, to show her off those present at the feast to lurch over her. She refused, which angered the king, which led to her being dismissed. In chapter two, we read that the king was then advised to find a new queen and he wanted the best. So virgins were sourced throughout his kingdom. Esther, a young Jewish girl, ends up gaining favour with, with the king and we read she eventually becomes the queen. Shortly after this, her relative Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king. Mordecai informs the king, which results in the king's life being spared. Shortly after this, in chapter 3, which we read last week, the king promotes someone else as his chief commander, Haman, who takes a disliking to Mordecai and, in effect, plots a genocide against the Jews, a mass murder. Through scheming, a royal decree has been issued, plotted by Haman with the king's seal, which made it law. In effect, a mass murder of Jews within this vast kingdom. 
The Jews, through no fault of their own, suddenly faced the prospect of their extinction within the empire. And as we read Esther, and in particular this chapter, it's really interesting to read the different reactions to what we read last week. We see three different reactions. The king, King Xerxes. The king was blissfully unaware of what had really happened. In chapter 3, verse 10, Haman had offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver to have this law to kill the Jews past. To put that into context, the entire income of that empire at that time was approximately 15,000 talents of silver. He is offering for this to happen two-thirds of their entire income. The king's finances, crippled by war, were partly motivated sorry, to agree to this. Another important point here is the king's foolishness that we've picked up on. The king handed Haman his signet ring. That gave him a free pass to do whatever he wanted, to pass any law and seal it with the king's decree. He could write anything he wanted. Foolishness from the king. The king was blissfully unaware. And we see from his reaction, what did he do after this had happened? He sat down and drank. The second response we see to what's going on is that of Haman, the plotter. He flattered the king, knew his financial weakness, and used this as a means to exploit for his own personal gain. We see Haman's character perfectly in the final verse of chapter 3. He signed and sealed the death of millions of people for his own gain. Doing a bit of research behind that, scholars argue that once the Jews had been killed, he probably would have plotted to raid their lands, hoping to recoup some of the vast expense of the initial outlay to get these people killed. And what did he do? He sat down and drank. Calm, callous. His conscience doesn't seem to be prickling him too much. Now, it'd be easy to stop here, throw our Bibles on the floor and say, why does God let these bad things happen? We've read that an evil man has schemed his way into the king's favour at the expense of Mordecai. And sin has triumphed. These people are going to be murdered. But we're wrong. God is aware of what's going on here. And what's interesting in the book of Esther is that God's not directly mentioned, which seems strange for a book of the Bible, when you do a bit of background reading behind this, the assumption from the writer of the book is that the reader would know that God is sovereign, that God has everything under control, that God will take care of things, that he will have his way. God is aware of the injustices going on. Although the outlook looks bleak so far, he won't let sin triumph in the end. His plans, his plans will triumph. And bear in mind that the plotting of this attack on the Jews is not simply just an attack on them as a people. This is bigger. Think about the promises of the Messiah coming from Jews. It's fascinating to bear this in mind as I was doing some reading behind it. We have this cosmic battle behind the scenes of good and evil. The devil plotting to eradicate, to steal, kill and destroy, to eradicate God's people. And God, our loving, merciful king, aware of what's going on and yet not surprised. So we're going to turn to chapter 4 today. So chapter 4, we're just going to read the first verse to start with. So Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, 
Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. We see a polar opposite in reaction to what's gone on here, a contrast to our other two characters. We read that when Mordecai learns what happens, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This wasn't a random act. He didn't just grab the first thing out of his closet. This is a symbolic gesture about what's going on. When you look in the Old Testament, you see this happening time and time again. David, when he realised that Saul had been killed, tore his clothes in 2 Samuel 1. We read Job 1, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, sorry, that upon hearing his children had been killed, he ripped apart his garment. We read in Genesis 37, 29, that Reuben tore his clothes upon learning that Joseph had been sold off as a slave. This was a way in the culture of showing grief, of showing shock, of showing horror. Clothes at the time would have been expensive. It was a way of showing that this was their primary concern, that nothing else mattered. This was important. He was shocked, Mordecai. He was grieving. And he didn't just make this a private grief. 4.1 says that he went out into the city and cried. He was telling the whole city, guys, this is wrong. This is a scandal. And as we read on, he didn't just stop there. Chapter 4, verse 2 reads, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. This was significant. You see, at the time, particularly in Middle Eastern kingdoms, the kings were cut off from the people. They liked to live in their own bubble, their own haven. Their palaces were lavish. Their plates always full, regardless of what was going on. It was like their own heaven. They were often oblivious to the toils of their every person within the kingdom. They didn't like the problems of the people to come to the door. What a total contrast to our God. What a total contrast to Jesus who beckons us in. And what Mordecai did here was significant. He was doing everything in his power to try and show the people, the king, that this was wrong. Standing wailing outside the palace gates would have drawn attention. It would have caused a stir. It would have disrupted this artificial haven. Now, I imagine that, if you've ever had a child who's up in the middle of the night screaming, it's pretty disturbing. It's quite hard. It's hard going. I can imagine that's probably what it sounded like. He's mourning. He's grieving at the gates. And we see this is a total opposite to a response that we might have in our culture. What might we have done in Britain? Gone away and grumbled? Complained? That's what we tend to do. No. Mordecai wasn't happy to just mourn in silence. He wasn't happy to simply hear of an injustice and not act. He was prepared to do whatever he could, whatever he could, to stop this from happening. And the beauty is that we have the benefit of hindsight here. We know what's going to happen. We can read on. But he didn't. He did the only thing he thought he could do at the time to try and prevent this from happening. No matter how small an act it was. And there's a challenge there for us. There's a real challenge there for us. When we hear of injustices, when we hear of things that are wrong, how do we react? Are we like Haman, who's involved in it, 
involved in an injustice plotting for our own gain? Are we like the king, blissfully unaware, happy to just crack on? Or like Mordecai, do we try and react and make a change? Now, how might this look in today's society? Governments could pass laws that treat others unfairly. They could marginalise the poor. There could be injustice. Let's have a look at what this might look like. I was looking through Open Doors. I don't know if you've heard of Open Doors. They're a charity who work with Christians and other people. And, and some of their figures already are absolutely shocking. So since the start of the year, 255 Christians have been killed because of their faith. 255 Christians. And these are only the ones that are recorded. There are many that we won't know about. 104 men, women and children have been abducted because of their faith. If that carries on, that's over 1,200 a year. Again, only the ones that we know about. 66 churches have been attacked. At this rate, that's 792 in the year. 160 Christians have been detained without trial or imprisonment. Now, this isn't a political speech. I'm not really bothered about your political persuasion at the moment, to be honest. Mordecai's actions are about a godly righteousness, a godly justice, which goes beyond politics. This is a Christian calling. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. Injustices are happening all around us. Injustices are happening all around us, not just to our Christian brothers and sisters. If we look at some government statistics this year, in 2018, the food bank handed out 1.3 million food parcels. Somebody guess how many of these went directly to children. Somebody guess. So 1.3 million parcels were handed out. Somebody fire out a number that went to children specifically. Somebody guess. You can't be wrong. 900,000? One million, okay. Anybody else? Take us a bit less. Pardon? 500,000, close. 484,000 parcels went to just children. That's scandalous. In 2018, last year, there were 72,000 known female prostitutes in the UK. A survey done by the YouGov asked the main reason for working and 74% of these people, 74%, that's 53,000, said the main reason for working was to just feed their families. That's shocking. Shocking. As of 2018, there were over, there were over 7,000 known homeless people. And they're just the people we know about. So what? Why should this matter to us? Well, it should just like it mattered to Mordecai. He could have gone home and accepted the fate, but he didn't. The Bible is really clear that as Christians, we are to be a compassionate people. People who care about justice. Colossians 3 reminds us to clothe ourselves in tender-hearted mercy, kindness, and gentleness. When was the last time you did that for somebody? Showed mercy, kindness, and gentleness. Isaiah 117 reminds us that there's a warning to laws that are unjust that oppress the poor. Again, this isn't a political speech. What this is about is pointing people to Jesus. Are we showing Jesus in these situations to the world? 
For too long, we've locked ourselves away, blissfully unaware of what's going on. But when we look at Jesus, our perfect example, he came down to heaven to live amongst us, to love us, to show mercy. What a contrast to the rulers of the world. If we are to be like Jesus, we should be doing the same. Unfortunately, Paul Jackson's not here, Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to fix this country. Anybody knows if he's a proper militant. I swear he's got a Jeremy Corbyn pillow. <laughs> Theresa May won't fix the country. The best planned Brexit deal isn't going to fix the mess we're in. The best research isn't going to fix it. There's only one person who can fix it. Who's that? Jesus, amen. Sometimes we might ask ourselves, what can I do? Hey, uh, Mordecai could have done that. What could I possibly change doing this? As a church, we do the homeless drop-ins, we feed people, we give to charities, we support churches in Africa, which is fantastic, but we can all still do our own little bit. Mordecai had no idea what his action would do, but he did it. He was prepared to make a statement to oppose the injustice, however he could. His small step here was to set in motion God's plan to redeem the Jewish people. Some brilliant quotes of some reading I've been doing. Timothy Keller writes that throughout the biblical history, God often uses the most obscure people to achieve the greatest things. How encouraging is that for us? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the majority of defining Christian acts don't come from traditional heroes. Rather, change is brought about from the quiet heroism of those inspired by God. Stunning. So my challenge to you is don't downplay your role. You have no idea, no idea how God could use you in your situation. Writing a letter to an MP could make a difference. Supporting a charity that looks after Christians persecuted. Do you know, just praying, if you can't afford to do anything else, can make a massive difference in these situations. Are we making a stand at work when something is wrong? So it's just take a moment now to just think, in what ways are we reacting to injustice in society? Are we trying to make a difference? Or are we simply accepting things and going back to our own haven? As we read on, we see how Mordecai's small actions had a big impact. How his willingness to step out and say that this was wrong was the first step in God's restoration. So if you just open your Bibles again, Esther 4, we're going to carry on reading 4 to 9. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, got that right, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of the people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
What did he hope to achieve with the wailing and the sackcloth? Perhaps someone outside the king's gates would hear him. We're told in Esther 2.11 that the king's ladies in waiting knew Mordecai. Since he couldn't enter the house of the ladies, this was his only hope of getting the queen's attention. As we read on, we see that Esther heard about Mordecai's actions and she offered him new clothes. Should his actions arouse the king's concern? As I said, kings in those days didn't like being disturbed. This could potentially be a death sentence for Mordecai. Esther naively tried to protect Mordecai with new clothes. However, she was unaware of his motives. And this provided Mordecai with an easy option out. He could have simply accepted the clothes, done my bit, and walked on. The threat of death could easily have persuaded him to change his mind, to stop what he was doing. Yet he knew what he was doing was just. He knew it was righteous, and he was prepared to accept this, whatever the cost. You see, stepping up for just, uh, injustice sometimes is costly. We don't preach here, and I'm really sorry, you might not be at the right church, but we don't preach that God is going to make you wealthy. We believe he blesses you. But we don't mean that that's an automatic ticket to riches. Life will be difficult. We can't promise you great health for your whole life. Taking a stand for Christ is costly. It doesn't always end up the way you might think it will. Yet to live is Christ and to die is gain. We read that Mordecai's actions alerted the queen and began God's rescue plan for the people. He gave the decree to Esther as evidence. He told her about the amount of money and asked Esther to go and speak to the king to plead on the people's behalf. And we see in Esther's reply that she reminds Mordecai what would happen if she were to do this. Esther 4, 10 to 11. So Esther 4, 10 to 11. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king's uh, king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. If Esther was to go there, Chances are she probably would die. And when you do some background reading here, scholars argue that Esther wasn't trying to avoid speaking to the king, but rather this was a plea to Mordecai for guidance. He was a man who was in touch with palace protocol. She was seeking guidance. Why? Well, we read that she's been isolated from the king for 30 days. Possibly, possibly, she's fallen out of favour. We know he's very unpredictable. We know his attitude to women is shocking. For her to barge in would have potentially caused serious issues and made matters worse. And do you know what? I actually like this response from Esther. She was faced with a problem. She could have barged in. She could have made demands of the king. She could have ripped her clothes and said, this is wrong. She could have gone in screaming. She could have done nothing out of fear. Instead, she sought counsel. This is a biblical concept. Famous verse, be quick to listen slow to anger and slow to speak. When we see injustices, it's really easy to get a knee-jerk reaction, to jump on our moral high horse and try and fix it. But actually, it's really important that we just assess what's going on. We take time. There are always two sides to a story. Take time to think, to pray, to seek counsel. God, what's going on here? 
But God, what's the reason behind this? How can I make a difference here? And Mordecai's response to this, he reminds her that she's been appointed at this time for a particular purpose, verses 12 to 14. I keep closing my Bible, I don't know why. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Brilliant response. He's reminding her that God has brought her here for a purpose. And her purpose is now evident. She was there to intercede for her people. And this is a real great encouragement for us, that God places us in positions, sometimes difficult positions, sometimes seemingly impossible situations, but he can use us in these situations for his glory. Mordecai was so convinced that God would free the people from this that he said that salvation could come from somewhere else. He knew that this was wrong. He knew God's heart. He trusted God. Sometimes we might not see what it looks like. It might just require us to take a, to take, sorry, a step of faith. But there's something really encouraging and reassuring about this. Is it hard? Yeah, you bet. Is it easy? Nope. Can it be costly? Yeah. See, right. I'm just going to read your story. I've, I've had this book. Um, um, it's about Christians who face um, oppression in, in various countries around the world. And there was a story that really drew to me and that reinforced this. And there was a guy called Musa. Musa was in a village in Somalia. And um, some armed men came into his village and um, took over the village, um, oppressed the people, treated the people really cruelly. And he felt that he needed to go and preach to these people. Now, bear in mind that these were not nice people. And the context of the book is that they would kill, do whatever they wanted. It was a free fall. It was horrendous. So I'm just going to read you a couple of extracts from it just to show you this. Musa, so this is his friend, he's in a conversation with his friend. Musa, you are my friend and I honour you for loving God as you do and sharing your faith so freely. But you are playing with fire. You know who her husband is. And he felt God had called him to go and speak to this lady who was the commander's wife. And this was dangerous. He's really playing with fire here. And his reply is phenomenal. Yes, I know, Musa replied. And I also know that God's word tells us to preach the gospel to all nations, including ours. And I don't see any exceptions. He could see there's an injustice going on and he wanted to try and get God into the situation. His friend said, but you could put yourself in danger. You could put your family in danger. But if nobody dares to bring Christ to the situation, then her life and the life of these people is in internal terms in more than danger. He said, we are not responsible for the outcomes my friend, but we are responsible for bringing God. Even if it could get you killed? Musa paused. Yes, even if it could get me killed. But your fa- Musa held up a hand. Ahmed, God is bigger than my family. I love my wife. I love my children, but we are told in the Bible to love Christ above all. Isn't that phenomenal? Absolutely phenomenal. 
He had a conviction to bring God into an ungodly situation. In the end, he shared Christ and his children were killed. And it's really sad. I'm a bit emotional now because it's really sad when you read the book. Um, But his heart was phenomenal. And in a world where most people play it safe, it says, this is after the story's been, been shared, to avoid suffering, Many of our devoted Christian brothers and sisters suffer atrocities and die sacrificially because they love and want to bring Christ into a situation. Like Musa and his family, they take to heart Paul's words. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Just absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Mordecai was convicted by God. This was his driving force. Verse 14 reminds us of this that he knew God would save them. And he reminded Esther of this. He was prepared to give his life on the trust, the total assurance that God would save the people. We read in verses 15 to 17 that in preparation before she goes, which we're going to look at more next week, she fasts. She's preparing the ground ahead of her. Do we do this when we spot an injustice? Do we prepare the way ahead of us? Do we spend time with God? God, is this what you want me to do, Lord God? What do you want me to do? How can I bring you into this situation, Father? Is this more than you want me to do? What is it that you're asking me to do? He was prepared. Um, do we spend time, sorry, wrestling with God before we go into a difficult spend, uh, situation? Are we spending time with him? From a human perspective, everything was against Esther and the success of this mission that God had appointed her to. The law was against her. She couldn't go to the king. The government was against her. A decree had been issued for her to be killed. Her sex was against her, as the king's attitude towards women was horrific. All of these could have given her also an easy option out, but she didn't. Because she realised upon discussion with Mordecai that this was her battle. John Piper refers to these as Esther moments. I love it. She replied, I will go to the king, although it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Doesn't this just perfectly summarise Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Take heart. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign. No matter what situation you're facing, no matter how difficult it might be, If God is for us, who can be against us? Isaiah 46 tells us that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare from ancient times things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Whatever situation you're facing, whether it be a personal situation, whether you are like the Jews facing an unjust accusation, whether you've been put in a scenario that seems impossible, however difficult the mountain may seem, however negative it might be, we have a God who is bigger. A God who promises to never leave you or forsake you, who promises to comfort you and love you, and a God who wants the best for you. So I'm going to finish. Um, I'd just like you all to stand, if that's possible. If you're able to, just stand. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to look back and read upon the lives of people who've gone before us, Lord God, who've run their race well, Father God. Lord God, we thank you for their reaction to sin, to injustice, Lord God, that they are prepared to put their lives for others. Lord God, I pray that in whatever situation we're facing, Lord God, however difficult it might seem, Lord God, if there are any, anything going on in the world, that, Lord God, you are convicting us to try and change with holy justice, holy justice, that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us, Lord God, and give us the tools that we need to bring you into that situation. Life might be difficult. Situations might be impossible. Things might seem dark and there's no way out. But Lord God, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you promised to never leave us or forsake us, Lord. Let us be a people, Lord God, who are compassionate, who are kind-hearted, who show mercy to this broken and lost world. Equip us, Lord God, with those gifts to do that, Father God. For your glory, for your name. Hallelujah. Amen.